Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm going to leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at T-Mobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories include fighting in the might of Atlantic storms, reflections on the hell of Okinawa, landing tanks on D-Day, and back home, a butcher and the black market. We begin with this story from Ivor Davis. My father, Dennis Patrick Davis, one of 13 children born in South London, signed up for the Navy in 1940. He became an able signalman and was eventually assigned to a flower-class corvette, the Gentian, and formed part of a North Atlantic convoy group led by HMS Hesperus. Dad hardly ever talked about his wartime experiences. A couple of times he mentioned how awful the convoys were, His main problems seemed to involve being soaking wet all the time and not having any decent food after three days. The following is an extract from a letter he wrote to one of his brothers about a particularly bad convoy. It gives me the chills just reading it. These corvettes were really hell ships. After three days at sea, there was no tucker, just ship's biscuits and a tin of marmalade, the ingredients of which were very dubious. We were only allowed two cups of water per day, providing that the water distiller was working. The name of the ship was HMS Gentian. It was part of the B-2 escort group, under the control of the group leader Hesperus, commanded by Commander McIntyre, a fearless man with a flowing red beard, and at that time the youngest and most decorated commander in the Royal Navy. He was a bloody good bloke. Our third trip proved to be the complete opposite of the preceding two, We'd hardly left the Irish coastline when the convoy came under heavy attack from a U-boat pack. Ships were darting everywhere and confusion reigned supreme. We were all firing death charges like confetti but only managed to disturb the water. Hesperus did manage to get a U-boat and after that it quietened down. Once in Newfoundland, where the Canadian Navy took over to take the convoy into Boston, we were able to relax, have a shower, haircut and a decent feed – a whole week of heavenly bliss 
until the homeward-bound convoy came in. We then took over from the Canadians and brought them all safely back to Liverpool. It only took six weeks. We were all ready to sail again after ten days. The first night was relatively calm, slight wind and a moderate swell. Alas, those conditions lasted only until the following afternoon and then all hell broke loose. Not, I hasten to say, through the enemy, but from the elements. I couldn't believe it, the rapidity of the change. Our first inkling of what was to come was a terrific lurch to port that sent everything flying to that side, including all of us on the bridge. We must have been going almost 90 degrees because the port guns were awash. We were all horizontal and found it difficult to get to our feet. After what seemed an eternity, the ship righted itself and got its keel back into the water. The wind, meanwhile, had intensified and was howling at typhoon force. I could not keep my eyes open. Then another crash and over we went again. It was impossible to see the convoy or any of the other escorts. Just a solid mountain of water and pitch dark, even though it was only late afternoon. These conditions prevailed for the next few days. Then it worsened. I was in my action station in the crow's nest and having the ride of a lifetime. There was an empty tobacco tin up there as an ashtray and, believe it or not, I managed to fill it with seawater as we did a heavy roll to starboard. I swear it was over 90 degrees. I thought, this is it. She ain't going to come back from this. I prepared to slide out of the crow's nest and into the water, although I did not relish the thought of going into that raging torrent, but she shuddered for a while, then, oh so slowly, started to come back. That was when I filled the tin. It took what seemed ages to get back on an even keel, although it was over in five minutes. Hell ships, they may have been, but they really were seaworthy. The worst was still to come. We were battered, blown and storm-tossed for a further three days. Then came the big one. I was again on the starboard side of the open bridge when we copped a beauty. It almost turned us right over. I crashed across to port, smashing into the binnacle on the way and cutting my head badly, and finished up a crumpled, blood-stained heap with the officer of the watch. Blood was all over my oilskins, and the sou'wester was full of water, only it was red. I had no tin hat on, as we were not at action stations. The sou'wester was not designed to withstand the impact of a brass binnacle. At first I thought we'd been torpedoed, but I was slowly losing consciousness. The next thing I remember, I was in my hammock with my head swathed in bandages. We carried no doctor, and I couldn't be transferred to Hesperus, who did have one, and they couldn't put him on board Gentian, so the treatment was prescribed by signal. I recovered somewhat, and as we only had three signalmen, felt obliged to resume duties. I was far from well, but the other two were keeping watches of four hours on, four off. By this time, the poor old gentian was buggered, a complete shambles. All our lifeboats and floats had disappeared. The lifelines we'd rigged were bobbing about somewhere in the Atlantic. The guns on either side of the bridge had broken loose from their mounts and were dancing to and fro with every roll and pitch of the ship. The upshot of it all was that we were stuffed. We'd only been at sea for a month, but the captain requested permission to go to the nearest port because, and I quote his signal, We'd reached the prudent limit of human endurance. We made for Ponta Delgado in the Azores, which was a neutral port, where we were allowed 48 hours to effect repairs. I was taken to the only hospital where I was patched up a bit. We managed to find an old cutter, which we took for our only lifeboat. After plugging all the holes and 18 coats of paint, she looked seaworthy. Thank Christ we never had to prove it. 
We also managed to pinch some food, mainly onions, which I still hate, and fresh water, so we lived like kings for a day. We sailed after our time was up to try and catch the convoy. We prayed that the weather, comprising of tempest, tornado and typhoon, had settled down a bit. It wasn't good, but it was certainly better than the previous four weeks. Dad went on to survive the war and continued serving in the Navy. He joined the crew of HMS Loch Katrine, which was sold to the New Zealand Navy in 1949. He was part of the transfer crew that sailed to Auckland. Half the crew were Kiwis, and he liked them so much that when he arrived in New Zealand, he decided he wanted to stay, transferring to the Royal New Zealand Navy. Best wishes, Ivor Davis. This next story comes from Jim Fornachari. Hello guys. My dad, Earl Fornachari, was in high school when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour in December 1941. His older brother Jack, two years his senior, quickly joined the United States Navy, while my grandfather John had fought in the First World War and earned the Silver Star, so you can appreciate how anxious my father was to enlist. In July 1943, he was finally inducted into the United States Army after graduating from high school and following basic training at Camp Roberts in California. He was assigned to the 27th Infantry Division. By the time Dad completed his training, the Japanese whole of the Pacific was weakening. Their forces had been defeated at Saipan and Iwo Jima, setting the stage for the invasion of Okinawa. The 27th Infantry Division was given the responsibility of joining the assault on the stronghold, located 400 miles south of the Japanese mainland. The battle began in early April 1945, and it would take the American military several months to occupy Okinawa. The fighting proved to be very difficult in what turned out to be the final battle of the war. One of the most vicious engagements was for Kakazu Ridge, part of a line of ridges known as the Shuri Line. My father took part in this action, starting in the middle of April. In preparation for the American assault, the Japanese fortified the Shuri Ridges by making tremendous use of caves and a network of underground tunnels. This was a change in Japanese tactics. They chose not to defend the initial American landings on the islands, as they had in previous battles. Instead, they elected to heavily fortify this series of ridges and fight a battle of attrition. In recalling the Japanese fortifications, my father said, it looked like numerous apartment buildings. The Japanese were dug into a series of thick caves and they placed their heavy cannons in front of these caves. The 96th Infantry Division made the initial assault on Kakazu Ridge and took heavy casualties. After several days, the 27th was called up to relieve the 96th. My father recalled, We were passing members of the 96th and some of them were quite pathetic looking. They were tired, shaken and some were actually crying. For a few days we had to exist there. I was given the job of light machine gunner for night duty. On the second night the Japanese did attempt to attack, they moved very slowly, very quietly. You hear things, you see things. I wonder the next morning if what I saw and heard was real. That night we killed some Japanese. We had a nice display of fire in the night sky, tracer bullets flying from four different positions onto one. My father described the task of removing the Japanese from such an entrenched position. There were several ways we would eliminate the Japs in the caves. A fellow would crawl next to a cave entrance, while the rest of us would provide supportive fire in order to keep the enemy down and out of view. The GI that sneaked up to the cave would then heave a satchel of dynamite inside. We also made use of phosphorus grenades. We threw them into the caves as well. If a person got it on their skin, 
who had burned completely through, extremely painful. With the cooperation of two marine divisions and four army divisions, the Japanese hold on Okinawa finally ended by early June, at great costs on all sides. Looking back on his fight with the Japanese some 40 years later, my father offered this reflection. I could only have respect for the Japanese soldier. They are poor equipment and in the long run less equipment. We had as much ammunition as we wanted. The Japanese did not have an inexhaustible supply of ammunition. Our soldiers would fire and if they missed, they had another round to fire and if they missed, yet another. The Japanese soldier had to exist under many more hardships than we. In examining the bodies of the Japanese dead, we found they had very little to carry. They had no raincoats, no ponchos, no cigarettes and only small packets of rice and that was about it. My father was very proud of his service and received the Bronze Star in recognition of his efforts on Kakazu Ridge. In reflecting on his time in the United States Army, he said, It is something you cannot forget, will not forget, and will be proud of. I'm glad I was there, even though it took three years out of my life. I do not regret it one bit. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our next story comes from Richard Somerset. Dear James and Al, at the start of the pandemic, I discovered a box of family heirlooms that once belonged to my great-grandmother. It included more than 500 documents, photos and letters that belonged to her son, my grandfather, Francis Somerset, known as Shan to his family. Shan wrote regularly, and his mother kept every letter. 
He was 20 at the outbreak of war and served in the Royal Navy aboard HMS Mendip in the North Sea. By 1941, he transferred to HMS Saunders in Egypt. This was a training base for combined operations, and here he was trained to captain landing craft. During 1942, he sailed along the North African coast, delivering provisions to the 8th Army, including a trip to Tobruk. In 1943, he sailed a landing craft infantry large as part of Operation Husky, and his photos capture some of the armada he sailed in. A subsequent letter describes being in an Italian cafe when the Italian government surrendered and the wild celebrations among Italians and servicemen alike. The collapse of Italy did not end his war, and in June 1944, Shan was part of the attack on Sword Beach. He sailed LCT-444, one of four vessels carrying five DD tanks from 13th-18th Hussars. These landing craft closed to just 5,000 yards before the tanks entered the water. One of the tanks from LCT-444 could not engage its propellers and sank. Fortunately, its crew bailed out into their yellow life raft and were recovered. After D-Day, Shan and his crew were part of the enormous supply efforts. He sailed 22 journeys, and the physical challenge of these repeated crossings is not to be underestimated. Shan was subsequently recognised in dispatches for his efforts. The LCTs carried supplies to France and brought prisoners back. One letter recounts the deck filled with German prisoners. Despite being outnumbered 25 to 1, the crew were not concerned, partly due to the amount of weaponry they had trained on the enemy, but primarily because the Germans were very seasick. His letters to his mother sometimes took on a darker tone as he recounted the men who'd been killed and described walking among the ruined fortifications along the French coastline. I find it incredible to imagine the gentle grandfather I knew at the bridge of a vessel looking at the shells raining down on Normandy. Shan passed away in 1996, but reading his letters has made me feel very close to him, and it's a privilege to share his story. Kind regards, Richard Somerset. And our final story this week is from Gary Bircher. I'm writing to you with a different story to most. It's from the home front, about financial skullduggery in the meat trade, and how my grandfather became embroiled in the black market. Stanley Bircher was born in 1908 into a working-class family in Hucklecote on the outskirts of Gloucester. When Stan was 13, his father died, so he had to leave school and find work to feed his family. By the outbreak of war, he was established as a butcher in Longlevens, another community on the outskirts of Gloucester. Being in a reserve trade, he was not called up, but did serve in the local home guard. Meanwhile, the butcher in a nearby village had registered his wife as the business owner for tax reasons. This meant that he wasn't registered in a reserve trade and was consequently called up. His wife was unable to cope with all the physical work, lifting sides of meat, sawing bones and cutting joints of meat. So Stan took over these aspects as well as running his own business with my grandmother. He took no payment for this work, viewing it as a favour for a fellow professional and all part of the war effort. So how did this well-meaning and altruistic man become engaged in the black market? The meat trade was highly regulated. Customers had to register with a butcher and could only obtain meat from that shop. Butchers were allocated enough meat to fulfil the ration allowance of their registered customers. As well as serving his regular customers, Stan obtained a contract to supply RAF Innsworth. The main role of Innsworth was a training facility, so the population of the camp fluctuated. Stan would often arrive with a meat delivery, 
only to be told it wasn't all needed, and he could take the meat away again. This left him with a dilemma. There was no process for returning the meat, but he'd already received the allotted ration for the customers registered with him. This meant he couldn't officially sell the meat through his shop, but he didn't want to destroy perfectly good food. He decided to offer extra meat to his customers. While this ensured the food wasn't wasted, it did mean he'd entered the world of illegal trading. The black market. He was discreet with these transactions, and so were his customers, so he was never caught and continued until the end of the war, making himself a small nest egg in the process. His next problem was what to do with the proceeds of the black market trade. If this wasn't legitimate business, he couldn't pay the money into his bank account. The cash was stored in an old biscuit tin in the back room. Not wanting to draw attention to his additional income, he used it sparingly after the war. The biscuit tin moved to his garage when he bought a new house in the 60s. The final twist in the story came on the 15th of February 1971, Decimalisation Day, when the money he'd kept for so many years became worthless. He was still cautious about taking it to the bank for conversion, and the old notes could not be used after decimalisation. So the unusual times of the war managed to turn an honest man into a black market trader, although one very different from the stereotype of Walker in Dad's army, a programme my brother and I used to watch with him without knowing anything about his shady past. Best wishes, Gary Bircher. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. That's wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or leave it on the members site under the family stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. A huge thank you to those of you who have shared your stories this week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>